0: If you guys want to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, that's where we'll start this morning. Oh, afternoon, sorry. I always get up here right at noon and I always say morning and confuse everyone. It's not morning, it's 12.05. So we'll start this afternoon. It's good to be back here with you guys. I visited a lot of... Um, brethren overseas and it was encouraging to see them Um, in a strange way it's encouraging to see other brethren struggling with the same things that we struggle with Um, how to be united even though we're different how to reach out to the community Um, it reminds me of Peter uh, telling Christians that the same sufferings you're having are are being suffered by your brothers all around the world Um, I can tell you that that's true um, and I know you've experienced the same thing as you've gone and visited other congregations. So like I said, in a strange way it's encouraging, but the part that's really encouraging is to see them persevering. Not that they're struggling, you don't like to see that, but to see them persevere and, and be determined to not be shaken is encouraging. I want to continue um, a series of lessons that I started looking at the letters to the churches in, in Revelation Um and the promises, specifically the promises that are made. Um, before we get into the details of the, of, of the letter to Pergamum, which is where we'll be, um, I just want to reiterate uh, some of the thoughts that I've, I've brought up and we've talked about about promises in general. And it's not really for you, it's, it's more for me. <laughs> I, I don't know why I struggle with this, but I have a hard time having confidence in promises. And I don't know if everyone has the same struggles I do, but when, when someone says something to me or promises something to me, not out of malice or ill intent or hard feelings toward that person, I just sort of prepare myself for that promise to be broken. Um, and it's really not an emotional thing. It's not like, oh, I want, I don't want my feelings to be hurt. It's more just like, People don't keep their promises. Like, you know, you promise you're going to give me a ride. Well, you know, I'm going to find a backup. I'm going to look at the bus route. I'm going to look at the bus schedule. I'm going to find out how far, how long it would take for me to walk if I got to walk. And it's not because I think you're such a bad person. That's just like me. I don't know if that's my personality. I don't know if I've been trained that way because so many people have made me walk, (laughs) you know. I don't know why it is, but that's just sort of what I do. That's how I interpret promises. It's like, I assume you want to do that for me, but that you're really not capable of following through in every circumstance. And actually, the, I mean, the Bible teaches us that's Um true. In, in James, James says, you know, you who are going to go into another city and travel and do this or that should first say, if the Lord wills. I will do that, because you can't even guarantee that you're going to make it to the next city. You know, the plane I flew on to Johannesburg, they made a promise that they would take me from Atlanta to Johannesburg, but they can't control the weather. Um, They can't make a flawless plane. It's It's not possible to produce a flawless plane. So things break. Weather patterns change. We can't even predict the weather three days out, and yet I bought this ticket three months in advance right? So we can't keep promises like God keeps promises, and that's what I want to bring up is we should not carry that baggage of broken promises and the inability to follow through. We should not take that baggage along with us when we start thinking about God's promises. You don't have to have a backup plan, you don't have to think, well, how, what other way am I going to get the glory He's promising in case He doesn't follow through? When we think about the promises of God, we should imagine the reality of what it's going to be like to receive that promise. Because He promised it. And I, that helps me as I go into these promises not necessarily to understand them, uh, but to have confidence in them and comfort in them, knowing that he follows through. Right? Okay, so let's look at the details now of this promise. This is a hard, this is a hard lesson for me, and I did it to myself right, by committing to, to do this series. But this promise at the end in, in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 2 is really confusing to me. So let's read it. Revelation 2, verse 17, Jesus closes the letter to Pergamum by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So there's, there's two images here. And I, I kind of thought one image was easier than the other until I started spending time on this. There's this image of hidden manna, which we'll talk about. And then there's an image of a white stone with a name on it. And we'll talk about that some too. But I don't, I don't want to spend too much time in the details. And you may, you may uh, get frustrated with me because I don't go into so much of the detail. I think there's a common theme between these two uh, images. And that's really what I want to talk about at the end of the lesson. Um, But first, let's let's just talk about the hidden manna. If you want to turn to Exodus 16, I think this is a physical representation of what Jesus is talking about. We all understand the physical manna to be the food that God uh, provided to Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. Um, It had to be a lot of food. I mean, 600,000... Um, I guess you could say fighting age men plus all the people that would be associated with that parents, you know children, spouse, wives um, and this manna fell every day and they could only gather enough for that one day well in in Exodus 16 uh, there's a command from the Lord at the very end of that chapter to keep some of this to set it aside now again manna was a curious thing for a couple of reasons not just because it, it appeared and then melted away when the sun came out but also because if you, kept, if you gathered it on Tuesday and you were going to eat some of it like on Wednesday when you went back and looked it was all foul and rotted and nasty and had worms in it, right? it, only, it the, you could only gather what you ate that day and you didn't keep any back except for Friday When you gathered on the sixth day, God says, because I don't want you to work on the Sabbath, gather enough for two days. And whatever you gathered on Friday, when you looked in it on Saturday, it wasn't spoiled and full of worms. Right? For 40 years, that happened. (laughs) It would go bad, except on Friday and Saturday, then it would be good for two days. Well, there's another curious thing here in, in Exodus 16. Um, beginning in verse, um, 31, the house of Israel named it manna and it was like coriander seed white and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Okay. So apparently this manna didn't just last one day or two days. It was to be kept throughout their generations. Right, so again, this is kind of a special bit of manna here. Uh, it's an omer full, which is like a couple of liters. Think of a half a gallon, right? Half gallon jug. It's about all it is, um, and it was to be kept, right, so that they would see the bread. It says, verse thirty-two, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness. Now we know it wasn't something to be seen all the time because it was kept before the testimony, right? It was in the holy of holies. which people didn't walk in and see all the time but it was to be kept as something to be seen. It's also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 9 if you want to turn over there we'll just look at the reference. And this is what I'm I'm thinking of as the hidden manna. That's why I say hidden. Even though it says in Exodus 16 it's to be kept so that they may see the bread, it's it's put in a place that they really can't see all the time, right? The high priest can see it, and maybe at times God allowed him to take it out and show the people. Here, this is the omerful. I don't know that. Um, we're not told that. But we are told it was kept so that they could see it. Now in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, uh in describing the things of the tabernacle, the author here, I'll I'll read uh starting in verse 3, sorry. Behind the second veil there was a, a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded in the tables of the Covenant. Okay, so here we see here that it's not just placed like, maybe at one point it's placed sort of in front of the Ark before the testimony, so to speak. But by the time Hebrews is written, what was known about it was it was in the ark. It was being held in there with the tablets and Aaron's rod. So again, this kind of makes it even more hidden. Like, I don't know how often God let the, the priest actually lift the lid and look inside. I mean, you weren't supposed to touch that thing. right? You do not touch the ark. Uh, you'll You'll die. And even when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, right... He had to be careful, and he had to do things just right, and he had to sprinkle blood and all of this, okay? So I'm suggesting that the hidden manna is, this is the physical representation of what Jesus is saying, right? We'll talk about the spiritual representation in, in just a second. But it's it's protected. We know that when God has something placed inside the ark he protected the ark people couldn't touch it people couldn't see it people couldn't approach it in fact there's a story when the ark was going around the towns of the philistines as being passed around because they had captured it in battle plagues were coming on the towns boils and rats and mice and things and they would just say here you take it and the town say no we don't want it it's going to kill us Send it away, like, like get it out of here. And so they sent it away and it comes to this place and a bunch of the Israelites looked into it and 50 some odd thousand people died that day because they looked in the ark. Right? So God protects what's in the ark, it's hidden. Right? And what Jesus is saying in Revelation 2 is to him who overcomes, I will give some of that hidden manna to him. Now, I think it's a spiritual representation. So let's turn over to John chapter 6 and see what this spiritual representation is. In John chapter 6, Jesus preaches a sermon that's even harder than this sermon, <laughs> at least for the hearers, right? He he, he's it's after he's fed the five thousand, right? Miraculously, he's fed them, and they're chasing him down. They're like, "Hey, this guy can feed people. Let's go get fed." Right? And Jesus calls him on that and says, "You're following me for food." And then he has this really hard conversation with him, telling him, um, "Well, let's just read it. Let's begin in in John chapter six, verse forty-eight. Not going to read the whole. The whole." Dialogue. in John 6, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. <clears throat> so this begins a really hard sermon that he's, he's telling these people, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. But I think for our purpose, what he's saying is, the manna in the Old Testament was supposed to be a representation of Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, I'm like the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And he's he's showing that receiving the manna from heaven was a prefigure of that, right? So what is the hidden manna then? What is Jesus saying? What what promise is he making in Revelation 2? And he says, "To him who overcomes, I will give him some hidden manna." Well, I think he's saying he's going to reveal more of himself. There are things we do not know about God. I, I would say the, the percentage of things we know about God compared to the things we don't know about God, right? We know like a hair's width of the circumference of the earth, right? We know so little about him, right? Because we can't. It's not that he's hiding himself. We're physical beings. So there are things about him that are still hidden. He is, Jesus is in a sense hidden, and he's not walking among us anymore. Right? So I think one of the things Jesus is saying is there are things you're going to know about me that you don't know. And that's kind of exciting to me. I mean, think what do you know about God? Just think in your head the things you know about God. What can he do? What has he done? Think about his character, the love he's expressed for you personally. I don't mean like he loves the world. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Got it. Think about you. What he's done for you. And what he wants to do for you. and That was part of our our scripture reading. We'll get to that later. John 14. He wants to reveal things to you about himself that you can't even know right now. I think that's what he means by the hidden manna. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. He's going to let us know him more. Now let's look at the next image, the, 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 the stone. I don't know if it's inscribed or what, but it's a white stone with a name on it. And Jesus gives it to the one who overcomes, and the one who overcomes is the only one who knows the name written on the stone. There are all kinds of ideas out there about what this means. But I'm just going to stick with what we can figure out, what we know and what we see in this passage. Um, there are stones used in the Old Testament now, we're, we're not going to read it but if you, if you want to later you can look in Exodus chapter 28 and you can see the breastplate of the high priest there were supposed to be 12 stones put in the breastplate with, and on each stone was written the name of the tribe okay? and they were different stones right? so there are times where God uses stones with names on them Right? That's in the breastplate. And he specifically says, it's interesting, he says the reason it's on the breastplate is so that the names of the tribes are close to Aaron's heart while he's ministering. Right? It's like you need to understand who you're ministering for, what your purpose is as high priest, and that they're close to your heart there are some other stones that go in the breastplate which may not be fixed there permanently the urim and the thummim right kind of hard to understand how these stones were used but the translations of the words are interesting, urim is plural for lights or flames and that stone was described as the lights right and the thummim is plural another plural plural word for perfection or completeness, so the perfections and the lights, right? Those those were the stones. Those were also kept in the breastplate. So this white stone. I mean, we could we could come up with things from all kinds of cultural things. Romans, Greeks, they use stones for different things. But I think the really important aspect is who knows the name that's written. The only person who knows the name written on the stone is the person who receives it. So it's not like um, Jesus is written on the stone, because we all know Jesus. It's not like Jehovah is written on the stone, because we all know Jehovah. Right? Do you can you think of accounts? in the Bible where people receive new names. Abram, when he received a new name, it was a blessing, right? Instead of father of a nation, father of nations, father of many nations. Sarai, renamed to Sarah. Jacob, renamed Israel. Right? Each time they received a name, it was a blessing. Right? It was something that God had given him and said, I'm going to call you this from now on. Simon, who is called Peter, right? his name was Simon. But his nickname, right? If you wanted to call him something you know, that showed his character who he really was, he called him Peter. He called him Rock. I think that's what Jesus is saying in this, in this promise I'm going to give you a name that only you know and it's going to be a blessing from me to you but that makes it personal as well because if, if it's something I know it's also something that God knows something that Jesus knows right? so if we put these two images together I want you to think about think about it this way I think what Jesus is promising here is intimacy with us individually. He's saying, I'm going to let you know me like you, you don't know me yet. I'm going to let you get to know who I am. Right? He doesn't say all of the hidden manna. To him, who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I don't think we can know everything about God even in eternity. But there are things we can know more about, and I think that's what he's promising And he says there's going to be a relationship between us such that if you want to say it this way, and I hope this isn't taken the wrong way, I'm going to have my own nickname for you. Like when I say it, no one knows what I'm talking about except you. Right? I'm going to give you this stone and on it's going to be a name and you're the only one who knows it. And when I talk to you, you're going to know I'm talking to you. And when I call you, you're going to know I'm calling to you and we're going to have that kind of relationship. Now, I know it's hard for us to understand having that kind of relationship with a billion people or whatever, right? But that's the capacity God has. We think because He loved the whole world that He can't love us individually, right? Because we can't do that, right? Our mind can't process having relationships with seven billion people. We're limited. Well, He's not. He's not. And he wants you to know him better than you know him now. And he wants to have a relationship with you to such an extent that when he's talking to you, you know, right, that he's talking directly to you personally. Now, this is couched in words of a promise. So let's bring our ideas about promise to this now. This isn't something that we have a chance at. This isn't something that we have to work for, and maybe if we earn it in in heaven, we'll be sort of among the elite that has this personal relationship with the king. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you have to overcome, and everyone who overcomes... What have we talked about overcoming being? Overcoming is persevering through this life. Overcoming is having a hope of heaven at the end of your life based on faith in Jesus. That's overcoming. Right? It's what Paul said, I fought the good fight. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He's not saying that out of arrogance, that he earned it somehow. He's saying that because God promised it. We can have the same confidence. We can say, you know what? There's a relationship I have with God that's coming that I can't even fathom. A personal relationship with Him. That I don't have to, I'm not going to have just a day or a week. That I'm going to live in that state in eternity. Because He's promised it to me. I don't have to worry about Him not being able to fulfill it. He's gonna have a nickname for me. Right? However you want to think about that, right? We all think about relationships differently. Some people think of, okay, it's coffee time with this one person, right? Or it's, you know, being out in nature with this one person or right. This relationship is what God wants with you. And He's promising it to those who overcome. Is that real to you? I mean, do you, do you, when you think about heaven, do you think about, man, I'm going to have at my fingertips a personal relationship with the creator of all things on his throne because he's promised it to me, not that I have to go get it. He's giving it. Is that real? If that's real to you, I would suggest this world becomes a lot easier to deal with. If that is real to you, you look at the news and it just goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't impact you spiritually. I don't mean you don't identify with people suffering. I just mean you see it and you think, yeah, that's this world that I live in. And I'm not part of it. Right? Let's look at, at the, the passage that was read. These these ideas, these thoughts remind me of a couple passages in John chapter 14. We'll look at those passages and then we'll be done. first one is John 14... Uh, beginning in verse one, the the passage that we read um, for our scripture reading this morning. I just want to look at verse three, since we already read it. This is a very personal statement Jesus is making here. I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may all may be also. This is the kind of thought that that promise brings to mind is that Jesus is going to come back and take me to where he is so that I can be with him always. And not just like a mass of people kind of looking at a bright speck on a throne, right? But someone who's got a nickname relationship with me and he talks to me in that way and I know that he's conversing with me. And he's fulfilling the promises that he's made to me and everyone else, right? But he made us relational beings to have a relationship with him, right? So the good things that you experience in relationships here on this earth, use that to think about this, being at home, right? Home means something to everybody, right? There's comfort in home. Well, we're going to have a new home. All right, he's, going, he's gone to prepare it. And we're going to have a home with him. That's a promise that he cannot lie, he can't break, it won't fail. All right, let's look also in John 14. Over at verse uh, 23. <clears throat> Well, we'll back up and, and we'll read verse, starting in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Do you see how Jesus makes a promise? I will disclose myself to him. I will make myself known to him. I think that's a promise he's keeping here in this life. I think these verses he's referring here to this life. But it's that same idea, right? The relationship we have with him is the foundation on which he discloses himself. Now, if that happens in this life, as imperfect as our relationship is, think about the perfect relationship in heaven and how when he discloses himself, right, we will see him as he is. Nothing's hidden, right? He's not like he had to shield Moses. He's not going to have to shield us from seeing his glory. We will see him as he is. And in verse 23 again, I think he's talking about life here, we will come to him and make our abode with him. If he wants to do that while we're here and struggling in sin in this fleshly body and facing temptation, and he wants to have his abode with us now, think about when we've we've overcome how much he wants to have an abode with us in heaven, having been perfected not facing temptation anymore? This is a promise that Jesus, risen and ascended into heaven, has made. To him who overcomes, we'll have these things. So without getting into all of the details of overcoming, let's look in verse 21 and see a portion of what this overcoming means. John 14, verse 21, we just read it. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. We cannot have any hope of overcoming or having these promises if we're not willing to keep his commandments. That does not mean perfect performance of law. It means... That you want to know his commandments and you intend to live out his commandments just as they are given to you. Do you see the difference in those two things? I might intend to walk up those stairs and I step on something and slip and fall. Right? Well, I'm not guilty of doing self-harm because I fell down the stairs. Right? I slipped. God knows your intentions. You can fool me, you can fool your family, you can fool everyone in this room for the rest of your lives. But God knows your intentions. That can be a scary thing or a comforting thing. For me, it's comforting. I don't have to prove myself to the people around me that I'm a Christian. I just have to live like one. And God knows I'm doing that. That's very comforting to me. So do that. And these promises are yours. I hope this has been, has been an encouraging lesson. It's been, I know it's difficult because of some of the details that are brought out in the, in the images. But I hope what I've left with you is the encouragement to overcome. The intention to have those promises fulfilled for you and if if you have any doubts about how to do that if you don't know how to have those promises if you don't know what it means to keep his commandments without living a perfect life how those two things are two different things talk to someone here talk to me I may not be the right person but you see my face ask me a question Um, our intention is to enable everyone to have access to the word that saves. And if you feel like you need that access, let someone know. And Stephen's going to lead a song now. And this is a good time to reflect on that and whether or not you need to do something with your life.